I'm sure most of you have heard the quote, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That's probably something you're familiar with and something we certainly have seen uh, throughout the years on display in various ways. And certainly as we study history, we see that all over the place at all kinds of different times in civilization. I want to say, though, kind of building off of that, that great power also produces great fear of losing that power. And that's a big part of what we're going to see as we look at this third message in this series, our current Christmas series. Today we're going to talk about an unexpected threat, an unexpected threat. And that threat comes because of what I just said, that with great power comes great fear of losing that power. We're going to see that on full display as we look at this together. So with that in mind, please focus with me on Matthew chapter 2 and beginning in verses 1 through 8. Matthew 2, 1 through 8 to begin with. Familiar passage. I pray that God will illuminate more to you from this familiar passage that maybe you have not really focused on or have not focused much on. Matthew 2, 1 through 8, God's word to us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men, and that would literally be stargazers or soothsayers, They were kind of a hybrid combo, astrologer, counselor. Wise men from the east, probably the Persia region, what we would know as maybe even Iran, arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So a unique star attached to a unique king that drew the attention of very unique people. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I would say so, because this just didn't happen. And this was much more than three wise men. This would have been an entire entourage. This would have been a whole group of wise men, soothsayers, astrologers, pagans to the Jewish people, absolute pagans, most likely from the same culture that centuries before had carried their ancestors away for captivity. So not exactly warm, fuzzy feelings. I mean, think about this whole group of people coming into Jerusalem unannounced, unexpected, and everybody's starting to hear about it and see it and talk about what are they here for? Why are they coming here? What is going on? This is unprecedented. This is unheard of. And especially when they heard why they were there. They had not just any king already over them, under the Romans, of course, but they had Herod who was known to not exactly be the most gentle of people. We'll touch on that in just a a few minutes. 
So there's all this intrigue, there's all this wonder, there's all this uncertainty, there's all this fear. Here's these people, we don't know why they're here. Oh, but now we, we have heard why they're here, and our King Herod isn't going to be too happy about that. What's that going to mean for the rest of us? Verse 4, so when King Herod, who is deeply disturbed in many ways, so he, when he heard this, he does this. He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Herod is not a dummy. He's a lot of things, but he's not stupid. He's already making the connection. Wait a second. This title, the King of the Jews, and one who is to come, he's supposed to be the deliverer. He's supposed to be the Messiah. I know this. I know, I know from the scriptures that there's that connection, that the coming king is also the coming Messiah, the one prophesied. There's one in the same. That's who these guys are looking for. That's who they're talking about. And so he goes right to the people who are supposed to know the details of all that, the answers, and he asks them, where is the Messiah? Notice he doesn't say, where is this supposed new king supposed to come from? He says, where's the Messiah? That's who they're actually looking for, guys. Tell me where he's supposed to be born. Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, they being the chief priests and the scribes, the religious experts, because this is what was written by the prophet. They're saying, Herod, we, we don't have to think that hard. We know where the Messiah is supposed to come from because the, the prophet prophesied about that. Here's what he said. We have it right here, written record. This is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's directly from Micah 5.2. Let me just pause in this text for a minute and just focus in on some of these details here, especially as it relates to the people Herod went to to find out the details, the birth of the Messiah, where that would be and what would be the surrounding details. I find it very striking, I think you probably do as well, that the religious experts, which would have comprised, by the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we hear a lot about them throughout Jesus' life and ministry, the religious experts knew where the Messiah was going to come from. I mean, down to the exact town. But they weren't prepared for the purpose of his coming. They knew all about the arrival, but they failed to accept or apply the reason. Isn't that striking? And isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic? It reminds me of something that happened later in Jesus' life as he had many, many encounters with the same kind of people, the same group, the religious leaders, the religious experts, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And as he was an adult, well into his earthly ministry, he said this to them. And it's recorded in John 5, 39 through 40. He said to the same kind of people, the same group, you pour over the Scriptures because 
You think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. See, that which he so accurately said of them started all the way back at the beginning at his birth. They knew about the Messiah, but they didn't welcome him. They didn't submit to him. What they show us, this group that's just briefly mentioned in this text, they show us something much more significant than their mention. They show us, they tell us, and remind us that knowing facts about Jesus isn't the same as believing or having faith in Jesus. It's just not the same. Knowing and having facts all about Jesus, who he is and where he came from, and all the historical accuracy that people might be able to have is not the same as having faith in Jesus. And the same is true today. A lot of people know a lot about Jesus. You know, he's an interesting historical figure to a lot of people. A lot of people know a lot about him. A lot of people get degrees in categories and areas of study that center around Jesus. They know a lot about him, but they don't know him personally. And they haven't experienced the personal transformation that he alone provides. And lest we think that that's just true of them, those people outside, friends, I warn you, that can be easily true of us. Especially in this area, especially in this culture, where so much is known basically, externally, about the things of God, about Scripture, about theology. We are in a very religious culture here. And just about almost everybody you talk to has some basic fundamental level of biblical knowledge or basic surface level you know, religion. If you talk to five people out on the street here in this area, maybe all of them, but certainly most of them, will be able to tell you how they grew up in church. They went to Sunday school. They went to Wednesday night meetings. You know, Their dad or their granddad or their uncle was a pastor somewhere. We can get lulled into thinking that knowing about Jesus is just as good as knowing Him. It's the same thing. And knowing a lot about Him means that you do believe in Him. But that's just not the case. It's not the same thing. There's a world of difference between believing things about Jesus and believing in Him. Putting all your faith, all your trust, all your hope, all your confidence in Him. Bowing the knee of all of your being. Your mind, your heart, your body, your soul. Bowing before Him in total submission and surrender as the only Lord of your life. Big difference there. Do you know about Jesus? Or do you know Him today? And are you known by Him today? Well, back in the text, Matthew 2, 7 is where we are. 
picks up with what, where we left off about him inquiring of where the Messiah would be born, and he gets that answer. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He wanted to do some calculations. Again, Herod is no dummy. He was able to deduce a lot of things. So he asked them the exact time the star appeared. Then verse 8, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Ooh. Sleazy, sleazy Herod. Sly, wily Herod. So they go and they find Jesus, who is not a baby. By the way, he was living in a house with his parents. He was between 18 months and two years of age, all but certainly. So they find him. They bring their gifts that they had prepared, which were prophetic and symbolic. They do that, and then they get this warning, an intervention from God. Instead of doing what Herod told them to do, here's the turn of events that happen as they leave this very special family. Matthew 2.12 is where we're going to pick up in the story. Matthew 2.12, God's Word says this, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son." And then back in the palace, back with Herod, things don't go well at all. And the angel's warning certainly comes to fruition. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. So Herod the Great, which was what he was known as in his title, Herod the Great, wasn't so great. And it was recorded by historians of that time that he always feared potential rivals in an obsessive, paranoid way. Almost as soon as he came to the throne, he killed 46 court members of the Sanhedrin. He had his wife's brother drowned in a pool in his palace. He had his wife Miriam killed along with two of their sons. 
since he considered them potential rivals because of a legitimate claim to the throne that they had because of their pure, high-class Jewish lineage through their mother, which he didn't actually have because Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't even Jewish. And he was installed by Rome, not by birthright. So he was always suspicious of losing that power. Speaking of Rome, Emperor Augustus is reported to have said of Herod, it is better to be Herod's pig than one of his children. Because he knew what he did to even his own children. So with all of that in mind, the details of Matthew 2, which we just read and are so familiar with, and his attempt to silence and stamp out the rightful king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, doesn't really seem so shocking, does it? When we see the picture of this man and what he's prone to. But it still begs the question, what was his main motivation in this massacre? I mean, even for Herod, this takes it to a whole new level. I mean, it wasn't that uncommon for rulers and those in power to try to purge out their what they perceived as potential rivals. All kinds of people did that. It was kind of how business was done. But, I mean, massacring all of the boys in the entire area, two years old and under, to match the time he deduced from the wise men, I mean, that was really taking it to a whole new level of bad. So what was his main motivation in all of that? Well, it really comes back to what I said at the beginning. Fear. Fear. And you know it as well as, as I do. Fear can cause us to do some pretty extreme things if we let it. If we allow ourselves to be ruled and dominated by fear, we can do unimaginable, unspeakable things. It takes us to really scary places. It's ironic, isn't it, that fear can take us to really scary places in an attempt to avoid what we're so afraid of. Fear. Fear of threat to his personal kingdom, fear of losing or of of having an unraveling of his illusion of complete control, fear of losing the very false sense of freedom and fulfillment that he thought he had and was clinging to, that he thought he was owed and entitled to. And all of that is not unique to Herod. We humans, we all strive for and want and pursue our own little personal kingdoms. And so much of the time we spend in our lives building up our own personal empires, our monuments to self. So many times we cling desperately to control over everything. You know that, right? I mean, that's true of you in some ways. It's true of me. It's true of our society and our culture. We know this. We want control. We try to keep control. And any time it seems like control is slipping out of our grasp, we panic. We become fearful of losing that control. Which is an illusion, by the way. There's very, very little we have control over. Very little. And we also have this ability to have an incredibly powerful false sense 
of freedom and fulfillment outside of God. We actually deceive ourselves and allow ourselves to be deceived into thinking that there is freedom outside of God and that there is fulfillment beyond Him. But it's a false sense. It's a mirage. When we believe that, and we are, when we are deluded in that way, and when we feel a threat to our control or to our own little personal kingdoms, we react. We react based on fear. I mean, it's not all that different now. At this time of year, it's a really popular thing for the church, for Christians to hear and to see the attempts of society and of culture to not focus on Christ, right? To not be centered around Jesus as the reason for the season. We can get really bent out of shape about that. We can get really upset pretty easily. And maybe we might ask ourselves, why are people so set on keeping Christ out of Christmas? Why are they so bent on that? Why are people trying so hard? Why is the the world and culture trying so hard to distract us from Jesus being the reason for the season? Well, it's really, I mean, it's pretty obvious. People want to keep Christ out of Christmas because they want to keep Him off the throne of their lives. People want to keep Christ out of Christmas because people want to keep Him off the throne of their lives. And here's what I mean by that. If you accept that Jesus really did come, that Christmas really is about His coming to us, Emmanuel being born, and you really explore and understand and apply the reason He came, which was not just to save us from sin, certainly that was a big part of it, but it was also because He came as the rightful King the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, meant to reign and rule in our hearts. That's why He came. That's the reason for the season. And so if you accept that, then that means you have to submit to Him. That means you are accountable to this King. And that means you give up what control you think you had. And it means you look to Him and Him alone for your freedom and for your fulfillment. And let's just be honest, people don't want to do that. People don't want to bend the knee to anybody except themselves. They don't want anybody to call the shots of their lives except them. They want me, myself, and I to be on the throne of their lives not the Lord Jesus. A lot of people are actually okay with Jesus, so long as He seems to be safe. So long as He doesn't appear to pose any personal threat to that kingdom that they're so set on building. So long as He doesn't pose a personal threat to their control, to their freedom, to their fulfillment. So long as He doesn't step on their toes, so long as he doesn't go into rooms they don't want him going into, so long as he doesn't meddle. But we would do well to learn some truth from Mr. Beaver. 
Yeah, I said that right. You heard that right. Truth from Mr. Beaver. Referring to Mr. Beaver from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia, shame on you. There's your holiday reading assignment. Truth from Mr. Beaver. In the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, the children, the four children, the Pevensies, come to Narnia. They meet Mr. Beaver, who tells them that they are meant to take the thrones of Care Paravel and restore peace and prosperity in order to Narnia to help deliver them from the clutches of the white witch. And that he is to bring them to Aslan, the great king. Then they find out that Aslan, the great king, is a lion, a great lion, the greatest lion. And when they hear this, they ask a very logical question. Well, is he quite safe? To which the beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus, friends, listen. Jesus is not a safe savior. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is not a safe savior. He's a great savior. He's a good and gracious and kind, merciful Savior, but He is not a safe Savior. So that begs the question, what version of Jesus are you worshiping? What version, what type of Jesus are you worshiping and pursuing? What version of Jesus have you built up in your own mind, in your heart, in your life? Is He a comfortable conventional, predictable, safe, little Jesus? Or is he the same Jesus in Scripture, which shows up, by the way, long before Bethlehem in the Old Testament? The the Jesus that shows up in a burning bush that says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. The same Jesus that appeared to the nation of Israel when they were delivered by the person who saw him in that burning bush who held back the sea and then let the sea come back on their enemies. The same Jesus who led them through the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of glory cloud in the day. The same Jesus that previous to that deliverance went through Egypt, smiting the firstborn of their captors. The same Jesus who is the great I Am. The one who is not safe. The one who is supreme over all things. The one who is sovereign over everyone and everything in all of the universe. That Jesus, the true Jesus, will always, always be a threat to the substitute saviors in our life. Jesus will always be a threat to the substitute saviors in our life. And all friends, we are good. We are good at finding substitute saviors, aren't we? 
We have so many of them. They're, they're called idols. That's another name for them. And we have so many of different sizes and shapes and styles and types. Herod had a substitute Savior that he was looking to and clinging to and that was enthroned in his life. It was named Herod. And its co-rulers were ego and pride and that control that I talked about. There's all sorts of substitute saviors out there. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll grab them and draw them into ourselves and, and enthrone them in our life. And Jesus will always be a threat to that. Because He alone is worthy of our supreme and exclusive honor, worship, and service. But even more than that, He loves us too much to keep us from the things that will truly bring us fulfillment. And guess what? They're found in Him and Him alone. Only by Jesus ruling and reigning supremely over our lives, every part of us, will we be fully fulfilled and truly free. And that's what He wants for us. And so yes, He will come against all the substitute saviors, all the idols we build up that keep us from Him. There's another quote from Narnia from the first book in the series from the magician's nephew when Aslan says to another human that refuses to accept who he is and believe in him, he says, O oh, sons of Adam, how cleverly you defend yourselves from all that would do you good. And we are so good at that. Well, the good news in all of this and in all of this story, the good news is, Despite what Herod tried to do to take Christ out of the story, no matter what other people continue to try to do in an effort to take Christ out of the story, no matter what all the forces of darkness may try to do, the truth remains what was proclaimed in John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not, will not, overcome it. Aren't you thankful and glad for that today? That's the really good news of Christmas. I hope it's the truth that you know. I hope it's the truth that you apply. And I hope it's the truth you proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it, the relevance of it, the power of it. I pray that we would be filled with hope and joy and purpose because of what we have heard and been reminded of today. That no matter what people like Herod try to do, no matter what our culture tries to do, no matter what the great enemy, Satan, and all of the forces of darkness try to do, they will not be able to be successful to stamp out the light of Christ, the light of Christmas. They will not be able to silence the voice of truth, the voice of life and salvation and power, which is Jesus, the message of Christmas. Thank you for that. Father, help us by the power of your Spirit to recognize and then to root out all substitute saviors in our lives. Help us to reaffirm that there is no other king worthy of our glory and honor and worship and service 
but Jesus. And no other king enthroned on the throne of our lives will bring us the fulfillment and purpose and joy and freedom that we all long for. He alone can do that. Help us to like the people that so many were willing to describe as pagans. Help us to draw near in full submission and in total worship to this Jesus. The Jesus that is not safe, but good. May that mark and define our lives. May we not just know about Jesus, but may we really know Him personally and be continually transformed by Him. I ask all of this in and for the name of Jesus. Amen.